PFAS in your tap water, and uh, a new drug against Alzheimer's disease. Those were a couple of stories that made headlines this week, and I'll comment on those. But let's get the ball rolling with my usual questions. I will toss out a couple. Until 1910, a night with Venus meant a lifetime with Mercury. To what did this refer? Second, the ancient Greeks called it podagra, which means foot grabber. They thought it was caused by bodily humors falling to the foot. What condition was this? So there are two questions for you to puzzle over. Until 1910, a night with Venus went a lifetime with Mercury. To what did this refer? And the ancient Greeks called it podagra, which means foot grabber. They thought it was caused by bodily humors falling to the foot. What condition were they talking about? I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to make sure that you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. We tried also to foster critical thinking, separate sense from nonsense. If all that goes well, keep you guys out of the clutches of charlatans. And of course, there's a whole army of those kind out there. Anyway, let me just uh, talk for a moment about the two items in the news that, that I referred to. First, about the PFAS. Uh, PFAS stands for perfluoroalkyl uh, substances. And uh, these have been in the news uh, off and on during the last couple of years because these are substances that are found in a large variety of consumer items and also in the environment. Uh, they are water-resistant, they are oil-resistant chemicals, and they are resistant to heat, which, of course, makes them extremely useful. Uh, the pizza box that you get your pizza in probably is treated with the chemical because uh, it is uh, uh, resist It makes the, the cardboard resistant to uh, oil and also to, to moisture. Uh, the... Uh, the rain gear that you're wearing probably has some PFAS in it. Uh, Teflon is in your fry pan. That is a type of, of, of PFAS. And these chemicals are widely used in firefighting foam. So, of course, they do leach into the environment. And there are some concerns here, mostly from animal studies and laboratory findings and a few epidemiological studies around the production plants where these chemicals are produced, where there is a far, far higher concentration of these chemicals in, in the water than anywhere else. Uh, so unless you live in one of those couple of areas in North America, you are not exposed to anywhere near that extent. So this study, which made headlines this week, uh, essentially um, described taking samples from tap water uh, from around the country, and uh, the tap water also either came from municipal sources or from private wells, etc. And uh, in about 45% uh, of cases, they did find traces of these perfluoral compounds, which of course means that in the majority of the cases, over 50%, they found absolutely nothing. But just finding doesn't really mean that these chemicals are doing anything. The question is, how do the levels that are found compared to what has been found to be potentially worrisome? 
And whether you go by U.S. standards or whether go, you go by the European Food Safety Association, uh, the levels, except for a couple of cases near some production plants, they were very, very uh, much below the acceptable levels. So uh, this really should not cause any, uh, any great uh, worry. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we really don't know the long-term effects of, you know, being exposed to trace amounts. Let's face it, because you don't know that until a very long term has passed. And uh, we don't have enough uh, enough data, but I, this is not uh, a, a panic situation. Now, the other story that I mentioned, which, of course, hit the news big time this past week, was the first-time approval of a drug in the U.S. that is supposed to not only alter the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but actually slow the disease. The drug is going to go by the name of Lekembi, L-E-Q-E-M-B-I. Interesting name. One of the few times that you'll ever see the letter Q not followed by U. Uh, you know, I don't know how they come up with these names, but uh, they generally want to find names that, that uh, more or less are memorable, both to the doctor and to, to the patient. <clears throat> All right, so what is going on here? Uh, just about every uh, uh, news channel, every newscast reported widely on the fact that this drug has been uh, approved and there's a great deal of excitement about it. <clears throat> My excitement about this is uh, somewhat tempered. Uh, first of all, this is not a miracle breakthrough. Let me just tell you what uh, they did. Uh, this was a so-called phase three study of uh, close to uh, 1,800 patients who had mild cognitive impairment at the very early stage of Alzheimer's disease. And they were given this drug, uh, which in laboratory studies can be shown to destroy beta amyloid proteins. And those are the proteins that clog up the brain, essentially, in Alzheimer's disease. They prevent transmission of information between nerve cells. The brain ceases to function properly. And the theory is that if you can clear up those deposits, uh, you can enhance neural transmission and improve the, the situation. So this drug in the laboratory did show that it can have an effect on, on reducing the amyloid proteins. Question is, what happens in people? So these 1,800 people were given the drug, and then they were evaluated by a series of, of tests and, and questionnaires on how well they performed. And uh, it turns out that over an 18-month period, the people who were getting the drug performed somewhat better than the ones who were getting the placebo. The number that is talked about is a 20 7% a reduction in the progression of the illness. But this is based on evaluating the answers that they gave on questionnaires and some of the tests that were administered, you know, memory tests, etc. This does not reflect any kind of practical difference whether or not the uh, people in their family or the caretakers noted any difference. That was not evaluated. 
So it's hard to know what to make of this, whether uh, there is actually a practical uh, difference. I, uh, I'm very suspicious uh, about that, uh, and, but there are other issues here as well. Um, beside the fact that this, this uh, uh, reduction in uh, beta amyloid probably is not going to be noticeable by the patient but but you know we will just have to to uh, to wait and see but there are also potential side effects and uh, there can be seizures there can be bleeds in the brain and that's the reason that people who are getting this have to go for periodic brain scans to make sure that there's no problem also they have to go uh, every two weeks to some center where the drug can be intravenously infused. And this is not a cheap drug. Uh, estimates are that it is going to cost about $26,500 US per year. That's a lot of money. And the improvement so far, while well, it's not really an improvement, but slowing down the progression of the disease over three, four, or five months, you know, that's a heavy price to pay for that benefit. Now, I understand that that benefit can be very uh, important for some people, that if you recognize your family members for an extra five months, uh, or you can carry out your tasks uh, better, you can you know, make some decisions about the rest of your life, this, this can be uh, important. And uh, also one has to take into uh, account that if you are extending the period that a patient does not need outside care, you know, in an institution, you're saving money there. Uh, so one has to weigh the risks and, and, and benefits. But I, I think that the enthusiasm for this has been somewhat uh, overstated. Uh, it is an important first step because it's the first time that there is a drug that has been shown to actually reduce the progression of the disease, although not highly significantly and maybe not even in a practical way. But it means that there can be further improvements of such drugs. Well, you know, we have our regulars who jump in with answers to my questions. Uh, James, Nick, and Kenny. Uh, James and Nick have answered online. Kenny, on, online. Kenny is on the phone. So let's give Kenny a shot here. Kenny. Hey, good afternoon, John. How you doing? How you doing, Doctor Joe? How you doing? Very well. You? You're very good. It's uh, still uh, too much heat. I'm staying in the air conditioner. All right. Fill me with About, your wisdom. For the uh, question for the Greek foot, is is, uh, is, is it uh, Morton Morton's toe? Is it what? It's called a Morton's uh, toe, like a condition of the Greek foot, fallen. No, no, it is not that. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll let you try again next week. All right. Well, James and Nick actually did get get it uh, it right. Uh, James knew that uh, until 1910, a night with Venus meant a lifetime of Mercury, and that referred to syphilis. The name of the disease comes from a poem written by the Italian physician Girolamo Fracastoro in 1530 in which a shepherd boy, Syphilius, insults the god of the sun and is punished with a horrible disease. 
ointments with metallic mercury and pills of mercury or mercurous chloride were used. And the patient often died of mercury poisoning. In 1910, Paul Ehrlich introduced Salversan, which was an effective treatment uh, for syphilis, but still had lots of side effects. And finally, penicillin solved that problem. Nick knew the answer to the story of the ancient Greeks and the disease they called podagra, which means foot grabber. Uh, and they thought that this was caused by bodily humors falling to the foot. This condition, of course, was gout. As uric acid levels rise and exceed the physiological saturation threshold of uric acid in body tissues, formation and deposition of crystals uh, of uric acid occurs in and around joints. And the propensity of gout for the foot was recognized by ancient Greeks who referred to it as podagra, literally foot grabber, and certain foods, especially red meat or organ meat, such as liver or kidneys, well as many oily fish, drinking alcohol, and uh, conditions such as high blood pressure, obesity, can lead to the production of higher than normal levels of, uh, of urate, the salt of uric acid in the body. Well, gout mainly affects people over 30 years old and tends to affect more men than women. So there you go. Now you know what... Uh, Podagra uh, referred to. All right, let me now uh, inform you and entertain you with a, a little story. And uh, the story of uh, Orviatan, it's an intriguing one. Sometime at the beginning of the 17th century, a shepherd attending his sheep near the town of Orvieto, that's between Rome and Florence, watched in horror as one of his sheep was bitten by a poisonous snake. Horror turned to joy as the sheep was restored to health after dining on a certain plant. The shepherd, taken by the miraculous plant, tried it on people suffering all sorts of ailments, found that it worked. Girolamo Ferranti heard about the shepherd's discovery and concocted a potion supposedly containing the wondrous plant, along with other herbs. 1603, Franti obtained a license from the city of Orvieto to sell his medicine in the town square. He then went on to tour Europe with his potion, which became known as Orviatan, and not to the place of its origin, and Ferranti was often referred to as Lorviatan, L-O-R-V, I-E-T-A-N, meaning the man who came from Orvieto. Well, anyway, as the story goes, Ferranti swallowed any unknown poison offered to him and relied on his antidote to destroy the effect. A pretty tall tale, I think. But for 200 years, Orvietan was indeed revered as a protection from poisons and a general cure-all, including serving as a remedy, forget this, lovesickness. Supposedly, it was a secret concoction, but many formulations were revealed over the years. These contained as many as 26 ingredients, mostly herbs and other delights, such as viper flesh. Well, doesn't that conjure up an image of snake oil? Diverse versions of Orvietan were sold by mountebanks on street corners, but the potion also became popular with the upper classes, 
in spite of criticism by doctors at the time who were pushing the opium-containing Mithridatum, or Theriac, their versions of cure-alls. The doctors and pharmacists feared their earnings would be undermined by the new kid on the block and labeled anyone selling Orviatan as a charlatan. It's impossible to say whether Orviatan had any sort of efficacy other than as a placebo. Some of the herbs could have acted as emetics or purgatives to rid the body of toxins. Uh, and, you know, in those days, the food supply was full of all kinds of toxins. Well, here is where we get into, you know, the interesting, more modern uh, version of the story. Orviatan has had a rebirth in the most appropriate place, the Italian town of Orvieto. Lamberto Bernardini is an Italian antique book collector who came across a 1697 version of an Orvietan formula and decided to recreate it as a digestive. And of course, if you're going to sell something as a digestive, you're not really claiming that it has any kind of you know medical value. You don't need any approval for that. No one really knows what a digestive means. <laughs> anyway, he opened the shop calling it Lorvietin, where he sells his bottled liquor. The label is decorated with an image of a sun, a reference to the sun king, Louis XIV, who granted exclusive rights to sell Orvietan to Cristoforo Contugi, who had inherited the secret from Ferrante and advertised the product widely. Bernardini doesn't say what herbs he uses, but he seems to think that his liqueur is more than the just a digestive in a video and of course anyone can do a video and play it out there he opines that maybe modernity went too far with our synthetic drugs and that we can quote easily live well using things from 400 years ago <laughs> really seems to me that medicine has made some pretty big strides in the last 400 years and we have progressed from putting viper plush in our medicines. There's no evidence that Mr. Bernardini has included any snake oil in his Lorvietan. Well, you know, not literally anyway. Uh, I would be amenable to trying this, to trying uh, Orvietan, just because of, you know, this uh, fascinating historical uh, connection. I don't think that it is available here. Uh, I suspect that you can buy it online because these days you can basically buy anything online. Of course, the uh, appropriate thing to do would be to go to Italy and uh, go to Orvieto and track down this store, the Lorvietan, and uh, go there and purchase some of this uh, so-called digestive, which has this uh, absolutely fascinating uh, history. Is it a modern version of snake oil? Well, I, I think it's a medicine, probably, but uh, it might be an enjoyable beverage. Well, given that my questions were answered, I'm sure you're just yearning for another question. So here we go. In pictures of D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, that was June 6, 1944, of course, you see a large number of blimps over the beaches where the Allied assault took place. What was their function? So what was the function of those blimps? 
you see in pictures and movies of D-Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy. What were these blimps doing there? 514-790-0800 is our phone number. You can text to 514-800. I think uh, we have Anthony on the line with a question. Anthony? No, I, I, okay, Anthony, I, I think, was going to answer a question, and, and uh, so he has, um, he has left us. All right, I am now going to attempt to galvanize you. Some of you probably remember, back in the 1970s, Ford came out with the Maverick car. I remember that very well because it was the first car I ever bought. And that was in 1970. And what was interesting about the Ford Maverick then, besides the price, I remember exactly how much I paid for that. I paid $3,300 for a brand new Ford Maverick in, in uh, 1970. And uh, they came in a variety of colors. And they were interesting colors. There was anti-established mint. There was candy apple red. There was hollow blue, pretty imaginative. But I went for Freudian guilt. Again, pretty clever, right? Uh, it was sort of a, you know, an off gold color, somewhat, you know, brownish, yellowish, whatever. I, I, I guess, you know, you, you could call it gold. And it was a pretty good color because you couldn't see the rust marks very well. They were, you know, sort of, uh, you know, not so visible because of the, the color of the card was sort of rust, uh, rust colored. And uh, I didn't do much better with my next car, which was a Ford Capri that also developed rust within a couple of years. And then I switched to the Japanese cars, and over the years I had Mazdas and Hondas, and, and now I've had uh, Toyotas for a large number of years. Now I have the uh, plug-in Prius, great car. Anyway, once I did that switch, I, I never encountered rust again, which is pretty interesting. How come? Because in the late 1970s, Japanese manufacturers had begun to coat the steel that was used in cars with zinc, and that protected against rust. You know what they were doing? They were galvanizing. Now, they didn't invent that. This, this process actually goes back to 1742 with uh, Paul-Jacques Malouin, who was a physician in France. But he saw the light, and he turned to chemistry. He wrote, uh, he actually became professor of chemistry. And uh, he wrote extensively, both in medicine and, and in chemistry. And uh, he came up uh, with the idea of coating iron by dipping it into molten zinc to give it a nice shiny finish, and then the iron would not rust. Well, aside from coating some cookware, uh, there wasn't much application for this because iron had not yet become a, a, you know, a construction material. I mean, clay and bricks and cement were, of course, used, but there was not that much iron in construction, so rusting wasn't such a great uh, issue. Then, uh, just over 100 years later, in 1837, 
French inventor Stanislas Sorel patented an uh, improved process. And uh, he called for cleaning the iron in uh, an acid bath before dipping it into zinc. Now, by this time, this had become uh, important because iron became to be, you know, a mainstay in, in, uh, in construction. Uh, he also, in the same patent, described the method of protecting the iron with a paint made by mixing very finely powdered zinc into flaxseed oil. So it was a, uh, a paint uh, that could be applied to a surface, a metal surface, and prevented it from uh, rusting. He referred both of these processes uh, as hot dip galvanizing and cold galvanizing. Why? Because he was paying homage to Luigi Galvani, the Italian physician who in 1780 made a historic accidental discovery that indirectly led to galvanizing iron against rust. Now, this is a story that's often told, and I'm sure that you know, you've heard it in different guises. Uh, Galvani had noted that muscles in a frog leg twitched when they were contacted with two dissimilar metals, namely copper uh, and iron. Well, he concluded that animals possess some sort of intrinsic electricity, and this accumulated in muscles and could be induced to be released and flow when an external conductor was applied. Well, his countryman, Alessandro Volta, a physicist at the University of Pavia, didn't think that this was so. He, in fact, hypothesized that electricity was not stored in muscle, but was actually created by the two metals, and the animal tissue just acted as a conductor. And then, of course, he went on to prove his point by constructing the voltaic pile. This consisted of alternating silver or copper disc with zinc, separated a piece of cardboard soaked in brine, and a current flowed when the bottom of the pile was connected to the top by a wire. What had he done? Of course, he had invented the first battery, now, the brilliant English chemist Humphrey Davy capitalized on this idea, and he used the battery to, to push electric current through solutions of numerous compounds, separating them into their elements. He identified the, uh, the elements, and he became very interested in electricity, and uh, especially with a problem at that time. British ships had been fitted with copper plates on their undersides to protect the wood from shipworms and from attachment of barnacles and mollusks, mussels, and algae, because those interfered with navigation. And uh, he had an idea. Uh, he knew that different metals had different activities. And he thought that maybe if he attached a more active metal to the copper, it would corrode preferentially. He was right. When he attached a piece of iron or a piece of zinc to the copper on the bottom of the ship, he did prevent corrosion of the copper. It seemed like a great idea. The Navy was happy, uh, but not for long, because although the copper didn't corrode, it quickly became fouled with marine creatures that attached themselves to the hull. Within a year, the Navy ordered that the protection be stopped. They didn't understand the reason for the fouling at that time. 
But the thing is that when copper corrodes, into, it goes into solution in the form of copper ions. And copper ions are toxic to barnacles and other such creatures. So they cannot attach themselves to the, to the ship. So although Davy's experiment was a failure, he had demonstrated that the pieces of iron and zinc did protect the copper from corroding. And Stanislas Sorel understood this. And when he patented his galvanization process, he described rusting as being a reaction of iron with oxygen in the air, and that a metal that has a greater affinity for oxygen can protect it uh, from, from rusting. And this introduced the idea of what today we call cathodic protection, whereby uh, attaching a piece of a more active metal to, to iron will actually protect it from rusting. And this is used in water heaters. The, your, the water heater that you have in your house probably has inside it a piece of magnesium to prevent the iron from corroding. Uh, on boats, on on on, on uh, uh, water pipes, or any kind of metal equipment that is submerged in water, they use this kind of uh, cathodic uh, uh, protection. But uh, as far as cars go, uh, this is uh, uh, to, the galvanization today is achieved by dipping uh, the metal before it is formed into cars into molten zinc. But why did it take so long for auto automobile parts to be galvanized? Well, because at first cars were made of very thick steel, so they did not rust through very easily. And also manufacturers constantly came up with new models that encouraged people to change cars frequently before rust became apparent, as I did. Because starting in you know 1970, after my Maverick, I, I kind of uh, changed cars every three years. That was just a thing to do back uh, in those days. Today, of course, all cars are made with galvanized uh, uh, steel, and it's very rare to see a rustic car. But you know what? All of this did start with Galvani's mistaken ideas about animal electricity, but he wasn't completely wrong. Just think of the electric eel, <laughs> right? Here's animal electricity for you. And as far as we are concerned, nerve cells do transmit information by generating electrical signals. So... I hope with that little discussion, I've galvanized you to look into the subject of electrophysiology further. I do have an answer to my question about the blimps that you see in pictures of uh, the invasion on D-Day, June 6, 1944. No, they, they were not there to direct ship and troop movement. They were there in order to prevent attack by low-flying German aircraft from uh, strafing the beaches where the soldiers were uh, landing. And uh, these were called barrage blimps. Uh, they were tethered to uh, ships with very, very strong steel cables. They were held aloft by hydrogen. And uh, the idea was that uh, low-flying German aircraft uh, would uh, bump into the cables and, of course, would crash. And uh, these barrage balloons did indeed serve that function. Now, they were not only used on D-Day. Uh, there were hundreds of these deployed during the Second World War. Actually, some were deployed during the First World War as well. 
but you can see pictures of London during the Second World War with these blimps all over the place. Again, uh, trying to to prevent uh, low-flying German air- aircraft from attacking. But then, uh, of course, as better aircraft were developed that could fly higher than the blimps, uh, their uh, function was no longer uh, adequate. So we do have a correct answer to that. All right, let me throw just one more question out for you today. What is the uh, biggest use of helium today? What For what is helium the most often used? Uh, if you're the answer to that, 514-790-0800, or of course you can text your uh, questions, uh, comments, uh, answers to 514-800. Uh, you know, I like to delve into history. Let me let me go back for a moment again to the 1940s. Long playing records made their debut then, and they were made of polyvinyl chloride (PVC). And of course, you're familiar with that today. It's used in, in tiles, shower curtains, all over the place. But interestingly enough, the material that uh, PVC replaced in record manufacture was also an interesting material. Believe it or not, it was shellac. Now, I know that mention of shellac immediately conjures up images of shiny wood furniture, but uh, this resinous secretion of the female Lassifer laca beetle, that's what shellac is. It has a number of other uses. Uh, It became... uh, originally commercially available in the 1800s. I mean, long, you know, long before there was a need for records. And uh, the reason that it became at that time quite popular is because shellac can be molded under heat and pressure into virtually any shape. It was used to make jewelry boxes, combs, even uh, early dentures. Shellac was an original plastic because plastics are defined as substances that can be shaped, usually under heat, and that when cooled down, will retain their shape. Anyway, people fit, uh, fitted around with these devices, uh, you know, and they probably had no idea what the origin of the material was. Well, the Lassifer beetles are native to Southeast Asia, but it is only the female that is useful, at least in terms of providing shellac. I guess she's useful for the male Lassifer beetles. I guess, though, there would be no females without the male, so they do serve a purpose. The female does not have a very exciting life, spending all of it attached to the limbs of a tree. She sucks sap from the bark, converts it into resin, which she then uses to glue herself to the tree. This is where the male finds her, performs his reproductive duties, and leaves the female encased in what becomes her resinous tomb. Indian uh, peasants discovered that the resinous material could be scraped from trees, melted, filtered from insect parts, and used to provide a lustrous preservative coating to wood. The production of shellac was not easy, single pound being the result of some 15,000 lag beetles toiling away for six months. As long as shellac was used as a wood coating, the demand could be met. After all, labor in India was very cheap. But with the advent of the age of electricity, demand increased sharply, 
because shellac turned out to be the best electrical insulator available. And demand rose even further when shellac proved to be better than hard rubber for making phonograph records. It wasn't ideal, however, given that it was fragile and the amount of music that could be recorded on a side was quite limited. But then along came polyvinyl chloride. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the first long-playing PVC record developed by Peter Goldmark, and shellac was shunted aside, at least as far as the record industry was concerned. Today, shellac is still sometimes used as a wood preservative, and it is used in the food industry as well. Since it is perfectly edible, it is used as a coating on candies, and is sometimes sprayed on fruits to provide a thin coating to prevent moisture loss. Of course, uh, most people are not cognizant of the fact that when they're eating these shiny candies or the shiny fruit that they are consuming, a sort of excrement of uh, a beetle that uh, lives on trees. Of course, just because it is an excretion of the beetle doesn't mean that uh, it should raise any kind of concern. And indeed, it should not. Like anything that is used in food, it has had to jump to, through the usual regulatory uh, hoops and, and hurdles. Uh, but shellac is not the only substance that is used to, to prevent moisture loss from, from fruits. Uh, there's a version of polyethylene uh, that can be used, and other polymers uh, also can be applied. And... Uh, uh, that's why uh, apples, pears, uh, oranges will last longer than they used to uh, because uh, nobody likes to buy a shriveled up fruit. And by spraying them with a the protecting coating, you can prevent the loss of, uh, of moisture. So I hope that uh, we've uh, provided you with some interesting stories today. I galvanized you with the story of galvanization uh, we spoke about the new drug for Alzheimer's disease and uh, PFAS found in our water, not as worrisome as some of the headlines would have us believe. That's it for today. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>